Hi, this is David Mould from Lehman for Religious Liberty. The tape that you're about to listen to is an exceedingly graphic and gripping tape. It's a testimony of an ex-nun by the name of Sister Charlotte, whom disappeared approximately two years after having given this testimony. If you have young children with you, you may wish to screen this tape and listen to it yourself before determining whether you want your child to hear the material that is on. We're releasing this tape in Jamaica, not that we might engender any hatred toward the Roman Catholic Church or the Roman Catholic people, but rather that you might be educated, educated as to the other side of Roman Catholicism. The Pope is coming sometime around October 12, 1992. We'd like to flood Jamaica with copies of this tape that when he comes, some brave soul might be inspired to ask. Well, John Paul, what can you tell us about Sister Charlotte? To be forewarned is to be forearmed. You probably received this tape without paying anything for it. We wish to let you know that you have our permission to duplicate it as many, many times as you wish. But please do not charge. Give the tapes away. Spread them far and wide that Jamaica might receive the education of a lifetime. Thank you. First of all, I always like to tell folk I'm not giving this testimony because I have any ill feeling in my heart toward the Roman Catholic people. I couldn't be a Christian if I still had bitterness in my heart. God delivered me from all bitterness and strife and delivered me out of all of that one day and made himself real to me in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I give this testimony, I'm giving it because after God saved me, he delivered me out of the convent and out of bondage and darkness. The Lord laid the burden upon my heart to give this testimony that others might know what cloistered convents are. And so as you listen carefully this afternoon, I trust I will not say one thing that will leave any feeling in your heart whatsoever that I don't carry a burden for the Roman Catholic people. I don't like the things they do. I don't agree with the things that they teach. But I covet their soul for Jesus. I'm interested in their souls. I believe Jesus went to Calvary. He died that you and I might know him. And their souls are just as precious as your soul and my soul. So I'm interested. First of all, as we slip into this testimony, having been born in Roman Catholicism, not knowing anything else, not knowing the Word of God, because we didn't have a Bible in our home, we had never heard anything about this wonderful plan of salvation. And so naturally, I grew up in that Roman Catholic home as a child, knowing only the catechism, knowing only the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And because I loved the Lord, and because I wanted to do something for him, I wanted to give him my life, I didn't know of any other way for a Roman Catholic girl to give her life to God other than entering a convent. And through going to the confessional box where, naturally, I'm under the influence of my father confessor, the Roman Catholic priest, his influence over my life, one day I made up my mind through his influence and one of my teachers in the parochial school, that I wanted to be a little sister. At that time, I thought of being a sister of the open order. 
But as I went on into this, up until the time I took my white veil, 16 and a half years of age, uh, everything was beautiful. Uh, I really didn't have any fear in my heart whatsoever. Everything was taught to me was seemingly along the line that I had been taught in the church before I entered a convent. And so one day, after having been, uh, after making up my mind to enter a convent, I remember that particular day, two of the sisters came home with me from school. They were my teachers. And when we arrived at my father's home uh, that afternoon, uh, our father confessor was in the home uh, likewise. I often say when I was a little girl, children were seen and not heard. You didn't talk when you was a child, at least you didn't in my family, in my home, unless you were spoken to. And I remember I listened to them carry on a conversation, and then I moved over close enough to my father to ask him if I could say something. That was a bit out of the ordinary, and he permitted me to talk, and I said, Dad, I want to go into a convent. And I'll tell you, that priest took it up quickly. They had already been influencing me. My father broke down and began to cry, not because he's sad, but he's very happy. My mother came over and took me in her arms, and she too wept tears. She was very happy. Those were not tears of sadness, because I think her little girl was giving her life to the convent to pray for lost humanity. And naturally, my family were very thrilled about it, and I was too. But anyway, I didn't go for about a year after that, and then the time come when I got myself ready, and my mother prepared things for me, and... So I entered the convent. They took me, and we didn't have a place close enough to my father and mother's home, so I think they took me around a thousand miles away from home, where I entered a convent boarding school. I liked about three months being 13 years of age, just a little girl. I look back on it now and think, my, homesick, I was so homesick. Why, my mother and daddy, they stayed three days with me, and when they left, I became so homesick naturally. Why shouldn't I? Just a baby away from home. And when I was a little girl, you know, I, I had never spent a night away from my mother. And I surely had never gone any place without my family. And naturally, there was a close tie in our family, and I was very lonely and very homesick. But I'll never forget after Dad and Mother told me goodbye, and I knew they were traveling a long distance away from me. And I had never realized in my heart I'll never see them again. Naturally, I hadn't planned it like that because I planned to be a sister of the open order. But if you listen carefully uh, to this portion of the testimony, then you'll understand just why I'm saying some of the things that I say. Now, oftentimes we say the priest selects his material through the confessional box because at seven years of age, I went to confessional. Seven years of age, I would always, when I come into the church, first I'd slip over at the feet of the crucifix, the, uh, uh, rather the Virgin Mary, and then over at the feet of the crucifix, and I'd ask the Virgin Mary to help me make a good confession because uh, I was a child and my heart was honest, and I knew the priest had taught us to always make a good confession Keep nothing back. Tell everything if I expected absolution from any sin that I might have committed. And so I would ask the Virgin Mary to help me make a good confession. And I would ask then the, uh, the uh, uh, Jesus to help me make a good confession. And you know, I'll assure you, uh, when I, after I lived in the convent for a short period of time, now I had to go on with my schooling. I just finished the eighth grade, and they promised me to give me a high school education, some college uh, education. But I didn't get much college. I got mostly just high school training. And they gave that to me all right. I took it under some terrible difficulties and strains and all of that. It was rather difficult. But they gave it to me, for which I appreciate very, very much. But I'll assure you, after they put me through the crucial training that we must go through to become uh, just a little novitiate entering a convent, uh, the training is really, it's outstanding as far as a nun is concerned. And you know what it's all about after you've been in there for a little while. 
So now I've entered the convent, and for just a few minutes, we want to tell you just a little bit how we live, what we eat, how we sleep. That'll, uh, if I take you into the convent and tell you those things, you'll understand a little bit more about my testimony. Uh, first, as I entered the convent as a small child, I went on to school, but they were, I was being trained. But the day came, uh, possibly, I was 14 and a half, when the Mother Superior began to tell me about the white veil. And I didn't know too much about it. Uh, but taking the white veil, they told me that I would become the spouse or the bride of Jesus Christ. There would be a ceremony, and I would be dressed in a wedding garment. And uh, on this particular morning, uh, they told me at 9 o'clock, uh, they would dress me up in a wedding garment. Now, you're wondering uh, where that come from and how they get the wedding clothes for the little nuns. The mother superior sits down and writes a letter to my father and tells him how much money she wants. And then, um, whatever she asks, my father sends it, and she, the little buying sister, goes out and buys uh, the material, and the uh, uh, wedding gown is made by the nuns of the cloister. I'm still open order now. And, of course, whatever she asks, now you say, did they spend all the money for the wedding gown? Well, of course, we don't know these things in the very beginning of our testimony, but after we live in a convent for a little while, we learn to know they could ask my father for $100, and he'd send it. And uh, not that they wouldn't use maybe a third of that for the wedding garment, uh, but they would keep the rest of it. My father would never know the difference, neither did I, until I lived in the convent for a period of time. And I had to make some of the wedding clothes, and then I knew the value of them and what they cost, and I knew of the money that came in because I was one of the older nuns. Well, all right, the time came, of course, when I walked down that aisle and I was dressed in a wedding garment. Now, you know, in the um, convent, I used to walk the 14 stations of the cross, the 14 steps that Jesus carried across the Calvary. But after I had made up my mind to take the white veil, never again did I walk. I wanted to be worthy. I wanted to be holy enough to become the spouse or the bride of Jesus Christ. And so I would get out on my knees and crawl the 14 stations. It's quite a distance. But I crawled them every Friday morning. I felt it would make me holy. I felt it would draw me closer to God. It would make me worthy of the step that I was going to take, and that's what I wanted more than anything in the world. I would like to impress on your hearts every little girl that enters the convent that I know anything about. That child has a desire to live for God. That child has a desire to give her heart, mind, and soul to God. Now, many, many people make this remark, and we hear it from uh, various uh, types of folk who say only bad women go into convents. That isn't true. There are movie stars who go into convents, and they've lived out in the world. No doubt they are sinners and all of that. But they go in when they're women. They know what they're doing. And they go in only because the Roman Catholic Church is going to receive not only thousands, but yeah, it'll run up into the millions of dollars. And they don't mind who they take in if they can get a lot of money out of that individual. But the ordinary little girl that goes in as a child, she's just a child, and she goes in there with a heart and mind and soul just as clean as any child could be. I, I say that because sometimes we hear a lot of things that are really not true. Now, after we become the spouse of Jesus Christ, I want you to listen carefully to this, and then you can follow me into the rest of the testimony. We are now looked upon as married women. We are looked upon as married women. We are the spouse or the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, the priest teaches every little girl that will take the white veil, they'll become the bride of Christ. He teaches her to believe that her family will be saved. It doesn't make any difference how many banks they rob, how many stores they rob. It doesn't make any difference how they drink and smoke and carouse and live out in, in this sinful world and do all the things that sinners do. It doesn't make a bit of difference. 
Still, our family will be saved if we continue to live in the convent and give our lives to the convent or to the church. Uh, we can rest assured that every member of our immediate family will be saved. And you know there are many little children that are influenced and enticed to go into convents because we realize it is a salvation for our families. And sometimes, even Roman Catholic families, the children grow up and leave the Roman Catholic Church and go out into the deepest of sin. And so every little girl that enters a convent is hoping by her sacrificing so much, home and loved ones, mother and daddy, everything that a child loves, her family will be saved regardless of what sins they commit. And of course we're children and our minds are immature and we don't know any better. And it's so easy to instill things like this into the hearts and minds of little children. And the priest is really, he's really good at it. And of course we look upon our priest, our father confessor, I looked upon him as God. He's the only God I knew anything about. And to me, he was infallible. I didn't think he could sin. I didn't think that he would lie. I didn't think that he ever made a mistake. I looked upon him as the holiest of holy because I didn't know a God, but I did know the Roman Catholic priest. And to me, I, I looked to him uh, for everything that I asked uh, of any of God, so to speak. I believed the priest could give it to me. And so the day comes when all of us. Now, as we're going in, I want you to listen carefully. After taking the white veil, things are beautiful. I'm 16 and a half years of age. Everyone's good to me. And uh, I'm living in the convent, and I haven't seen anything yet because no little girl, we're not subject to a Roman Catholic priest until we're 21 years of age. And as we give you this next vow, then you'll understand that we don't know about this. This is kept from the little sisters until we've taken her black veil, and then it's too late. I, I don't carry the keys to those double doors, and there's no way for me to come out. The priest will uh, tell all over the whole United States and other countries that sisters or nuns, rather, can walk out of convents when they want to. I spent 22 years there. I did everything there was to do to get out. I've carried tablespoons with me into the dungeons and tried to dig down into that dirt because there's no floors in those places. But I never yet found myself digging far enough to get out of a convent with a tablespoon, and that's about the only instrument. Because when we're using the spade, and we do have to do hard, heavy work, when we use a spade, we're being guarded, we're being watched. Uh, by two older nuns, and they're going to report on us. And I'll assure you, you're not going to try to dig out with a spade, and you wouldn't get very far anyway, because they built, made those convents or built those convents so little nuns cannot escape. That was their purpose in building them as they build them. And there's no way for us to get out unless God makes a way, but I believe God's making a way for numbers of little girls after they come out of the convents. All right, now when the time comes, I think I was 18 when the mother began talking to me. Now, I planned to come out, see, after my white veil. I wanted to be a little nursing sister in the Roman church. But the mother superior, I suppose she was watching my life. I suppose she realized I had much endurance. I had a strong body. And I believe the woman was watching me because one day she asked me to come into her office and she began to tell me, Charlotte, you have a strong body. And she said, I believe you have uh, the uh, possibilities of making a good nun, a cloister nun. I believe you're the type that would be willing to give up home, give up mother and daddy, give up everything you love out in the world, and the world, so to speak, and hide yourself away behind convent doors. Because I believe you're the kind who would hide back there and be willing to sacrifice and live in crucial poverty that you might pray for lost humanity. She said, I believe you're the kind to be willing to suffer because we are taught to believe as nuns that we, as we suffer, our loved ones and your loved ones that are already in a priest purgatory will be delivered from purgatory.
laboratory sooner because of our suffering. She knew I was willing to suffer. I didn't murmur. I didn't complain. She knew all of that, and she's watching my life, and that's the reason she began to tell me about the black veil. And then, of course, you know, I didn't know too much about a cloistered nun. I, I didn't know their life. I didn't know how they live. I didn't know what they'd done. But, you know, this woman proceeded to tell me. Now, we hear a lot of people uh, try to tell me in the various places that we travel and go. I hear a lot of Roman Catholics try to tell me I've been in so many cloisters, I know all about them. But, you know, a Roman Catholic can lie to you, and they don't have to go to confession and tell the priest about the lie that they told because they're lying to protect their faith. They can tell any lie they want to to protect their faith and never go to the confessional box and tell the priest about it. They can do more than that. They can steal up to $40, and they don't have to tell the priest about it. They don't have to say one word about it in the confessional box. They are taught that. Every Roman Catholic knows it, and every Roman Catholic, you'd be horrified to know how many of them steal up to that amount. And many of them lie. We've dealt with them. I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of them. I've seen good many of them fall into the altar and cry out to God to save them. And you know, before they're saved, they look into my face and hold my hand and lie to me. But after God gets a hold of their heart, then they want to make right what they've told me because they realize they've lied about it. But as long as they're Roman Catholic, they're permitted to lie. And it's the saddest thing. And you can't expect them to know God because God doesn't, does not condone sin. I don't care who you are, but I don't believe God condones sin. And I don't believe he's going to condone it to the Roman Catholic people, even though they're being misled and they're being blinded and led in the ways that's going to lead them into uh, a devil's hell. I believe that with all of my heart, because uh, I've lived in a convent and know something about how those people live and what they do. Now the day comes. She told me, Charlotte, you'll have to be willing to spill your blood, as Jesus shed his upon Calvary. She said, you'll have to be willing to do penance, heavy penance. She said, you'll have to be willing to live in crucial poverty. Now already, I'm, I'm living in a bit of poverty, but I thought that was going to make me holier and draw me closer to God, and it would make me a better nun, and so I'm willing uh, to live in that poverty. And then on this particular morning, she told me what I would be wearing. She said, you'll spend nine hours in a casket, and she explained a number of things to me. That's the most I knew about it, and I didn't find that out until I'd taken my white veil. And so on this particular morning, I'm 21 years of age, but 60 days previous to my being 21 years of age, I'm going to sign some papers that they place in front of me, and those papers are this. I'm going to sign away every bit of inheritance that I might have received from my family after their death. Of course, I signed that over to the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, oftentimes uh, I say the Roman Catholic priests are enticing girls, uh, not only their background, and not only their strong bodies, their strong minds and strong wills, but he's enticing girls where mothers and fathers have much property, and they are comfortably fixed to the material things of this life. Why? Because when that child enters the convent, they're going to get a portion of her money, of her father's money. And I often say, yeah, even salvation in the Roman Catholic Church is going to cost you plenty of money, more than you know anything about, and so they don't mind commercializing off of that child and the inheritance that would have come to her. And so on this particular morning, I, I told the Mother Spirit, give me a little while to think it over. She didn't make me do it. No one did. But I thought it over for a couple years, and then one day I told her, I think I'm going to hide away behind the convent doors because I believed I could give more time to God. I could pray more and more. I, I maybe would be uh, in a position where I could inflict more pain upon my body because we are taught to believe that God smiles down out of heaven as we do penance, whatever the suffering might be. And I didn't know any better because I often say, if you could only look into the hearts of little nuns, 
uh, if you are a Christian, you would immediately cry out before God uh, in behalf of those little girls because, to me, we are heathens. It doesn't make any difference the amount of education we may have. We are still heathens. We know nothing about this lovely Christ, nothing about the plan of salvation, and we're living as hermits in the convent. And so on this particular morning, I come walking down an aisle again, similarly to that, and may I say, uh, the morning before, I, I can't go into it too deep because I never would be able to cover enough of it so you could understand it, but this morning, I'm walking down that aisle, but I don't have a wedding garment on. I have a funeral shroud. It's made of dark red velvet, and it's way down to the floor. And I'm walking down that aisle. Now, I know what I'm going to do. The casket is all made, ready made by the nuns of the cloister. Very rough boards, and it's sitting right out here. And I know when I come down there that I'll step in that casket and lay my body down. And I'm going to spend nine hours in there. And two little nuns will come and cover me up with a, wee, a heavy black cloth we call, call a heavy drape mortel. And, you know, it's so heavily incensed that I feel like I'll smother to death, and I have to stay there. Now I know when I come out uh, of that casket, I'll never leave the convent again. I know I'll never see my mother and father again. I'll never go home again. I'll always live behind convent doors, and when I die, my body will be buried there. They told me that, so I knew it even before I'd done it. It's a great price to pay than to find out that convents are not religious orders as we were taught and as we were trained. It's quite a disappointment to a young girl that's given her life to God and willing to give up so much and sacrifice so much, I'll assure you, it was a disappointment. And so after uh, I spent those... Now you say, what you do while you lay in that casket? What do you think I did? I spilled every tear in my body. I remembered every lovely thing my mother done for me. I remembered her voice. I remembered the gathering around the table. I remembered the times when she would pray with us. I remember the things that she said to me. I remembered what a marvelous cook she was. Everything as a little girl growing up in that home, I remembered it, laying in that casket, knowing I'll never hear her voice again, I'll never see her face again, I'll never put my feet under her table again, enjoy her good cooking. I knew all that. And so maybe for four hours I spilled all the tears in my body because it was so hard. And I knew I'd get homesick. I knew I'd want to see her someday. But I gave it all up. What for? For the love of God, I thought I didn't know any better. And I'll assure you, those were nine long hours. And then I seemingly got a hold of myself, and I thought, this, Charlotte, now you're going to make the best Carmelite nun, because everything I've ever done, even that I'm out of the convent, I do give my best. I try to give everything that I have, in regardless what I might do. And so I did in the convent. I gave the best that I have, and I wanted to be the best nun that I could possibly be. And the Mother Superior knew that, and don't worry, the priest knew all about it, too. Now I realize... After I walk out of that casket or to come out of it, they're going to take me like this. Over here and right back here is a room. We call it the Mother Superior's room. Now, I've never been in that particular room, so I don't know what she has in there. But you know, when I walk in there this time, the Mother Superior sits me down in a straight back hard bottom chair. And immediately then I'm going to take three vow vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And you know, as I take those vows, uh, she opens a little place in the lobe of my ear and takes out a portion of blood because I must sign every vow in my own blood. And after that uh, happens, uh, then I'm going to take the vow of poverty. Now when I sign that vow, I sign it thus, and I'm willing to live in crucial poverty the balance of my life as long as I live. And what that poverty is like, of course, we don't know. And then my next vow, I'm going to a vow of chastity, 
And you know this vow, of course you know what it means. I'm taught to believe that I'm married to Jesus Christ. I'm his bride. I'll always remain a virgin. I'll never legally marry again in this world because I have become the spouse of the bride of Jesus Christ. After the bishop married uh, me to Christ, he placed the ring on my finger, and that meant I'm sealed to Christ. I'm married to him, and I accepted it because I didn't know any better. And now here I am, taking a vow that I would always remain a virgin because I'm the bride of Christ. And I want you to listen carefully. And then, of course, my last vow of obedience. Now, when we sign that vow, I'll assure you already, I know what obedience means. I'm living in a convent. And there they demand absolute obedience. You don't get by with anything, not even for two minutes. I mean, you don't get by with it. You have to realize what obedience means, and they demand it, and you learn to know it, and you're much wiser as well. The more quickly you learn it and you obey it, and you give them absolute obedience. All right, now, what does it mean to assign vows like this? Let me tell you this. It means more than you folk will ever know, because uh, most people that I know anything about, they know very little about obedience. Oh, in a sense, yes, but you'll never know what a little nun knows about obedience. I'll assure you that one thing, unless you live in the convent. All right, that particular uh, uh, vow, when I signed it into my own blood, it, it done something to me, because after I've signed those vows, do you realize that I've signed away everything I have, my human rights? I have become a mechanical human being now. I can't sit down until they tell me to. I don't dare to get up until they tell me to. I can't lie down until they tell me to, and neither do I dare to get up. I cannot eat until they tell me to. I, and what I see, I don't see. What I hear, I don't hear. What I feel, I don't feel. I've become a mechanical human being, but you're not aware of that until you have signed all these vows. Then you realize, here I am, a mechanical human being, and of course I belong to Rome now. I'll assure you that right now. All right, we become, after this particular vows, we become forgotten women of the convict. In just a short while, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Now, immediately after I've taken those vows, then the Mother Superior is going to give me, take away from me my name, and give me the name of a patron saint. And she teaches me to believe that whatever happens to me in the convent, I can pray to that patron saint and she will intercede and get my prayers through to God because I'm not holy enough to stand in the presence of God. It isn't wonder the dear little nuns can never get close enough to God. We have always been taught that we'll never be holy enough to stand in his presence and we always have to go through somebody else in order to get a prayer through to God. And we believe it because we don't know any better. And so now all identification of whose child it was is going to be put away. It'll be taken away from me. And if you would knew me and would come to the convent and call for my family name, they'd tell you there isn't such a person as that. I don't exist, even though I'm right there, because I'm writing under another name. Now the Mother Superior is going to cut every bit of hair off of my head, and when she cuts it with the scissors, she puts the clippers on it. And I mean, there's nothing left. I just don't have one speck of hair left on my head. And of course, if you could be a nun, you would understand the heavy headgear that we have to wear. It would be so cumbersome to have hair and so cumbersome to take care of it. We don't have any ways of taking care of it in the convent. There are no combs in the convent. And so you can imagine how hot it would be for us to take care of a head of hair. It's not necessary that we have a comb after they finish with us. All right, now, this is my black veil. These are my perpetual vows, we'll call them. I'm there, and I'm going to stay there. 
Now, you know, up until this time, I received a letter once a month from my family, and I wrote a letter out of the convent once a month from my family, even though when I'd write that letter, uh, I'd no doubt they marked out a lot of it, because when I would receive a letter from my family, there was so much of it blacked out until there was no sense to the letter, and oh, I'd weep over those black marks. I was wondering what my mother was trying to say to me. Don't worry, you'll never get to know what she wanted to say to you, because they have blacked it out. And so they break your hearts many, many times, and you're lonely anyway, because uh, you have no friends in the convent. I'll assure you, even though there was 180 on my particular wing, not one of those nuns were my friend, and neither was I a friend to them, because we are not allowed to be friends in the convent. We are all policemen or detectives watching each other. That's so we'll tell. And the little nun that finds something to tell on the other nuns, she stands in good favor with the Mother Superior. And then the Mother teaches that nun to believe. When she stands in good favor with the Mother Superior, she's standing in good favor with God. And so that little nun, of course, will want that, and she'll tell a lot of things maybe that are not even true on the other little nuns. All right, now after all of this has transpired and all of this has happened, everything I have is gone. I've sold my soul for a mess of theological pottage because not only are we destroyed in our bodies, many of us in our minds, and many of us, if we die in the convent, we've lost our soul. And so it's a serious thing. And I, I, I surely covet your prayers for little nuns behind clustered convent doors. They'll never hear this gospel. They'll never know the Christ that you folk uh, know tonight, uh, today. You'll never, they'll never pray to him as you people pray to him. They'll never feel his blessings as you people feel them. And so put them on your heart and pray for them. They surely need much prayer. All right, now, uh, as I walk into that room and all of this is transpiring, now, bless your hearts, I don't know what's going to be in the next room. After this has transpired and I've taken the vows that I will always remain a virgin, uh, I'll never legally marry in this world because I'm the spouse of Christ, and then after this, the Mother Superior leads me out into another room, or rather she opens the door, and I'm to be sent into that room. And when I walk out in that room, I see something I have never seen before. I see a Roman Catholic priest dressed in a holy habit, and he walks over to me and locks his arm in my arm, which he had never done in the first part of my convent life. I never had a priest to insult me in any way. I never had one other to be even unkind to me in the first part of my convent experience. But here he is now, and of course I didn't understand what it was all about. And I didn't know what in the world the man really expected of me. And you know, I pulled from him because I felt highly insulted. And I pulled from him and I said, shame on you. And it made him very angry for a minute. And he said, uh, immediately, the mother superior must have heard my voice because she came out immediately. And she said, oh, and they called me by my church name. She said, after you've been in the convent a little while, you won't feel this way. The rest of us felt the same way you do. And you know, the priest's body is sanctified. And therefore, it is not a sin for us to give uh, the priest our bodies. In other words, they teach every little nun this. As the Holy Ghost placed the germ in Mary's womb, and Jesus Christ was born, so the priest is the Holy Ghost, and therefore it isn't a sin for us to bear his children. And let me tell you, that's what they come to the convent for. No other purpose in all of this world do priests come into the convent but to rob those precious little girls of their virtue. And I'll assure you, we'll be telling you a little later in the testimony just what they really do uh, after they come in under those particular... Uh, uh, but may I say, now every bridge has been burned out from under me. There's no way back. I can't get out of the convent even though I pled. Oh, how I pled with that priest. Send for my father. I want to go home. I don't want to go any farther. And let me tell you, that's when you stand alone and you don't know who to turn to and you're a victim of circumstances 
and you'll live in the convent because there is no other way to get out of the convent. And I'll assure you, I stayed in the convent until God made a way for me to come out. And so after all of this, now my mail will stop. I'll never receive another bit of mail from my family. Never another letter. I belong to the Pope. I belong to Rome. And then after all of this, the Mother Superior, after taking these particular vows, and the priest has invited me to go uh, to the bridal chamber. You say, did you go? No. Definitely not. I didn't enter the convent to be a bad woman. It would have been much easier to stay out of the convent to be a bad woman. You wouldn't go into the convent and live uh, in the poverty we live in and to suffer as we suffer to be a bad woman. No girl would do that. And it would have been much easier to stay out of the convent if I wanted to be a bad woman. But I went there to give my life and heart to God. And that was the only purpose I had in going there. And here this priest is. And of course I didn't go to the bridal chamber with him. I had a strong body then. One of us would have been wounded because I would have fought until the last drop of blood. And you know, it made them very, very angry, I'll assure you. But he, I didn't go to the bridal chamber with him. But now I'm going to have to go to penance the next morning. And of course this will be a heavier penance because of what i done already. And when the Mother Superior says we're going to do penance the next morning, uh, I'm going to be initiated as a Carmelite nun. And I remember when she walked me down into that particular place, it was a dark room. I remember I lived above on the first floor until my black veil. After the black veil, they take me one story under the ground. And I lived from there on until God delivered me under the ground. I didn't live in the top part of this uh, buildings at all. But you know, as we walked into this room, it's dark and it's very cold. And when we walked in, we came from back there somewhere. We come walking toward the front, and I walked along beside the Mother Superior. And when I got near the front, I saw those little candles burning. Anywhere in the convent, you'll find the seven candles burning. And when I came a little closer, I saw the candles, but I couldn't see anything else, and I wondered, what's she going to do to me? That's the thing in our hearts, and we can't get away from it because we have fear. And when I come a little closer, I saw uh, something lying on a board there. And you know, when I came real close, then I realized, here's a little nun lying on that board. I'll call it a cooling board because it was that. And uh, just as long as her body, and there she was, and when I could see where the candles flickered down on her face, I realized that child is dead. And oh, I wanted so much to say, how did she die? Why is she here? How long do you keep her here? But you remember, I signed away every human right. And so I can't say one word, but I stood looking. Then the mother said, a superior, a superior said, you stand vigil over this dead body for one hour. And at the end of the hour, a little bell is tapped, and another nun will come to relieve me. And may I say, I was advised every so many minutes, I have to walk out in the front of that little body and sprinkle holy water and ashes over the body and say, peace be unto you. And I did exactly what they told me to do. Oh, it was a terrible feeling. I'm not afraid of the dead. It's the life people we have to be very cautious about. And I wasn't afraid of that little dead nun, but oh, my heart ached for. And, uh, you know, after the bell tapped and I realized my hour's gone, the nun who comes to relieve us comes back here somewhere. And she, of course, we walk on our tiptoes. No noise is made in the convent. And when they don't speak, they just touch you. And, of course, my being down there with that little dead nun, and I was full of fear, when that girl laid a hand on my shoulder, I let out a scream, a horrible scream, from fear, just fear. And, you know, I, did, I, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't break that rule on purpose, but I was scared. And immediately, uh, of course, I had to come before the Mother Superior. And that's when I le first learned to know, one of the first times, 
about a dungeon. They didn't tell me there were dungeons in the convent, and she put me in such a dirty, dark place with no floor in it for three days and nights, and I didn't get any food and any water. And I'll assure you, I didn't scream anymore. I tried so hard not to break the rules of screaming because there is a dungeon, and I know they'll put you in it. And let me tell you right now, it's not a nice place to be after you've been in one of those places. You'll know what it feels like. All right now. I say this uh, before I go any farther, that popery is a masterpiece of Satan. I said it's a masterpiece of Satan with its lying wonders and its traditions and its deception. It's a terrible thing when you know about it. And so uh, my, uh, as I come down into this room and she took me, uh, let me look at this little girl and that particular, if we call it a penis, is over. Now the very next morning... She said again to me, Charlotte, you're going to do penance. Not the next morning, it was three days after, because I spent three days and nights in the dungeon. The next, uh, or fourth, fifth morning, whichever it was, she said, you're going to do penance. She took me down into another room, not the same room. And when we come walking down this time, I could see that big piece of wood, but I didn't know what it was. And when I came a little closer, there was a cross. It was made of heavy timber. I, I might say it was maybe eight or ten feet high. Very heavy. And that cross was sitting on an incline like that. And she had me walk over here at the base of the cross. And she said, now strip your clothes off. And I took my clothes off. And then she made me down to my waistline. Then she made me drape my uh, body over the foot of that cross. And she pulled my hands underneath and bound them to my feet. Uh, uh, and then, you know, that's where I'm going to spill my blood. And she had not told me how, and neither could I ask uh, how I would spill it. And she gave two little nuns that came with her a flagellation whip. It's, uh, I might call it a bamboo pole. It's about this long. It's about that big around. And it has six straps on it about this long. And on the end of either of those straps, there's a cross piece of sharp metal. And those little nuns uh, either was given one of these whips. And they stood on either side of the cross. Now, at the same time, those girls began whipping my body. And I mean when that uh, metal hit my body, it would break the hide, of course. It would cut into the flesh, and I spilled blood, and it was running down to the floor. That's my flagellation whip, uh, whipping. That is where I spill my blood, as Jesus shed his upon Calvary. And of course I'm human, it wounded, it hurts. It was very painful. After the whipping is over, they don't bathe my body. They put my clothing back up on my body, and I have to go the rest of the day. When the night comes and I stand in front of my cell there, I, after we have to stand there to undress with our backs to each other, and then when I went in, oh, I couldn't sleep that night. I, I just wasn't a bit sleepy because I couldn't take off all my clothes. They had dried in those wounds, and it was terrible. I didn't take them off for several nights. And I'll assure you, when I came before my food, I didn't want my cup of black coffee. In the morning, we got a cup of black coffee. They serve it a tin cup, and we could have no milk or no sugar of any type in it. And we have one slice of bread. That's made by the nuns of the cloister. They weigh it. It weighs four ounces. That's all I get for breakfast. And then, of course, in the evening, I get a bowl of soup, and that's fresh vegetables cooked together. There's no seasoning in the soup whatsoever. And a half a slice of bread, and three times a week, they give me a half a glass of skim milk. That consists of my food 365 days in the year. And I began losing weight very rapidly, I'll assure you, because I didn't have enough food to eat. I don't know the day that I went to bed without a hungry stomach. Sometimes it would be so hungry, I couldn't sleep. The pain was gnawing. You can't hardly stand it. And you know you're only going to get that one slice of bread the next morning. That doesn't fill you up. And of course we have to work hard all day long. And I'll assure you, those little nuns, as I covet your prayers for them, they need your prayers in more ways than one because you'll go to bed with a full stomach tonight. And you're very comfortable right now. But I'll assure you there's not one of them that's comfortable. They're hungry and they're sick and they're wounded and they're hurt and they're heartsick and homesick and discouraged 
and worst of all, seemingly they have no hope. No hope. You and I are looking forward to the day when we're going to see Jesus. They have no hope whatsoever. And I surely hope you don't forget to pray for them. All right, that was terrible, I'll assure you. And then in a few mornings after this, the Mother Spirit is taking me back for another initiation. And when I go into the penance chamber this morning, we come from a place up here, and we're going to walk back along the, uh, like that, clear to the back. And you know, it was quite a ways back there, and I, I went through Parsha, part of it's a tunnel, and then I come out into a room, and I'll walk through that room, and when I get way back there, I see those candles burning, and I see something else. There's ropes hanging down from the ceiling, and oh, I'm so scared. I wonder what the ropes are for, and what's she going to do? After these two penances, you began to uh, have a lot of fear in your heart. And so I can't say anything, and I walk back there, and you know, I saw the ropes then real plain, what they're doing hanging down from that ceiling. Then she tells me, you go over there against the wall, about that close on the wall, and I have to stand sideways like this. Then she asked me to put up both of my thumbs, and I did. And then she pulled a one rope down, and there's a metal band uh, fastened securely, and she fastens that around the joint of my thumb. Then the other one comes down and fastens around this thumb. And there I'm standing like this, facing the wall. And then, you know, she comes over here to the end, and there's a, 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 a whatever you want to call it, she starts winding. And I start moving, and she's taking me right up in the air. And, you know, when she gets me so just my toes are on the floor, just on my tiptoes, she fastens it. And there I hang, and all the weight of my body is on my thumbs and on my toes. Not a word is said. No one speaks a word. And she walks out of that room and locks the door. If you know what it means to hear a key locking a door, and know that I'm strung up there like that, you'll never know unless you're a nun. And when that woman walked out, I didn't know how long I'll stay there, how long that woman will leave me there. And you know, they didn't come to give me food. They brought me no water. And I thought, is this it? Am I going to die back here just like this? And within a few hours, you can imagine, I'm still a human being. My muscles began to scream out with the pain. I was suffering. And that woman let me hang. Nobody come near. And what good would it do for me to cry? You can spill every tear in your body. Nobody will hear you. There's no one there to care how many tears you spill. And so I just hung there. And finally, I began to seemingly, I felt like I couldn't stand it. I'll surely die if they don't come and get me quickly. And I felt as if I was beginning to swell. I don't know how long went by. And she opened the door one morning and she had something for me to eat. And the water was in a pan. And it was potatoes. And those potatoes were not good to eat. They were in a pan. And there's a shelf, or a shelf over there on the wall that she can adjust to the height of the nun. And you know, she pulls it up. Now, I'm not against the wall. I'm about this far from it. But to get that food, she puts it there and said, this is your food. And she walks out. Now, how am I going to get it? She didn't let my hands down, but I, I, this is what you'll learn. And you'll struggle to get it. I'm hungry. I mean, I'm so thirsty, I feel like I'm going mad. And to get it, I discovered that this hand goes high, and this one will come down a little bit. And that'll keep right on going higher. As I lean, I have to reach higher with this one. This one will automatically let down. And to get that, wa uh, that water and that food, I mean, I had to get it like the dogs and cats. And I lapped as much of it as I could because I'm so thirsty. And get those potatoes, I tried as hard as I could because I'm hungry. I mean I'm hungry. And I got as much of it as I could naturally, but I was hungry. That's the way she fed me for a while, and then she released the bonds on my hands and on my feet. Now I tell you, then I, uh, I shouldn't have said on my feet. She didn't release the bonds. She let me hang there for nine days and nine nights. I'm getting, uh, almost got it mixed up with one of the other penances that I want to give to you. I hung nine days and nine nights in this position. And may I say, at the time come when I was so swollen here, 
and naturally I could see myself puffing out here. I felt like my eyes were coming out of my head. I felt like my arms were taut. I could see them right there. They were two or three sides, their normal, normal size. I felt like I was that way all over my body, and I was like a boil. I was in real suffering. And then on the ninth day, she comes in, and she releases the bonds from my hands and my uh, body and lets me down on the floor. Now, I go down. I can't walk. I'll assure you I didn't walk. I didn't walk for a long time. But you know what? There's two little nuns that carry me out. One gets under my feet and the other under my shoulders. And they carry me in the infirmary and lay me on a slab of wood. And there they cut the clothing from my body. And let me tell you right now, nobody but God will ever know. I'm covered with vermin and filth. Why? I'm hanging there in my own human filth. There are no toilet facilities. Right behind me is a stool. They have running water in it. And the lid is down. And they have sharp nails driven through that lid. If I break my ropes and fall on that, I would suffer terribly. And this is the life of a kind a little nun behind clustered doors after they've already deceived us, disillusioned us, and got us back there. Then this is the life that we're living. And these are the things that we're going to have to do. And I'll assure you, it isn't anything funny. And then I remember as I lived on in that place, Oh, let me tell you, in the morning, we have to get up out of our beds at 4.30 in the morning. The mother superior taps a, taps a bell, and that means five minutes to dress. And may I say to you folk, it's not five and a half minutes. You better get that clothing on in five minutes. And many, I failed one time, and I had to be punished severely, but I never failed again in all the years in the convent. And you know, when we are finished dressing, then we're going to start marching, and we march by the mother superior. And that mother superior is going to appoint us to an office duty every morning. It might be scrubbing, it might be ironing, it might be washing, it might be doing some hard work, but I have to work one hour. Then we'll go in and gather around the table, and we'll find sitting in front of us uh, our tin cup full of coffee and our slice of bread. And then, of course, we have hard work to do. We have, I think there was 12 tubs in the, in the convent that I lived in, and we wash on the old-fashioned washboard. We have the old sad iron that you heat on the stove. And you know, it wouldn't be so bad if we just had our own clothing in the convent, but the priests bring great bundles of clothing and put them in there because they can get them done for nothing, and we have to do that clothing on top of it. We work very, very hard, and they're not able to work because they don't have enough foodie, food to keep body, mind, and soul together, and those little girls are living under these particular circumstances. Well, I say we're women without a country, and I mean just exactly what I say, women without a country. Now we belong to the Pope. Anything they want to inflict upon my body, they can do it. And all the howling I do, if I should howl, it wouldn't make any difference because nobody's going to hear me. And they have no idea that I'll ever leave the convent. The plan is I'll die there and be buried there. Now you say, Charlotte, can you go into the convents? Any one of you folk can go into an open order convent, or I mean a closed convent, into the speak room. And there is an outside chapel that you can walk into of any that I know anything about. But you know, you don't you just go in there and wander around to have some place to go because you might meet something you're not expecting. If you go in there, you go uh, uh, prepare to take food to some little girl that's in there and be sure that you know who you're taking it to. And when you go, as you walk up toward the front of the building like this, you'll see a bell and you'll know what to do because it'll tell you. And you press a button there and there'll be a gate swing out. It has about three shelves on it. And of course, you've brought something for someone that you know in the convent. It might be the mother coming to visit her daughter. And you know, when that bell is tapped, the mother superior is back here behind a big black rail. Now, that's a big iron gate there, and there's heavy folds of black material clear across there. 
And you can't go back there. You'll never see the Mother Superior, but she'll answer you through the black rail. And you might say, I, I brought some homemade candy for my daughter. And you might ask the Mother Superior to let you speak to her. You can't see her, but you could speak to her. You know, the Mother will call that lovely little girl and call her out on the other side of the grail. Of course, you can't see her. And you know what? The Mother will speak to her and say, Honey, are you happy here? And that little nun will say, Mother, I'm very happy. You say, Why did she say that? Well, bless your heart, don't you know the Mother Superior is standing there? And if we didn't say that, after our mother is gone, then only God knows what the mother superior will do to the little nun. And so we must lie to our mother. And then the mother will say, uh, do you have plenty to eat? And that little nun will answer and say, we have plenty to eat. But I'll tell you, that mother will go home. She'll prepare a lovely meal for the rest of the family. But if she could look in and see our table and see what her little girl is eating, if she could look into her little girl's eyes after she's been there three or four years, 